And if you would, turn to Ephesians, the second chapter, the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. <clears throat> and uh, we will read beginning in, in verse number 2. I'm sorry, in verse 1. We're, we're going to read the whole second chapter, so Ephesians 2, the whole second chapter to begin. Um, I'll be reading in the New International Version as we go along. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, or literally of the spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient, or again, the sons of disobedience. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us, in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's work, uh, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, which, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to, those, to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him the whole building is joined together, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word, open our eyes to see. As we often look at verses like this, we can get so zeroed in on things that we can't see the forest for the trees. Help us to see the forest. Help us to see the big story that's going on in this chapter so that we can understand the pieces and parts and where they belong. In Jesus' name, amen. 
M. Scott Peck, best known for his book, The Road Less Traveled, in another of his books called People of the Lie, he describes the experiences he had as a psychotherapist that caused him to shift from being a Christian who didn't believe in, the, in literal demonic forces or demonic possession, he didn't believe that existed, to one who did believe that that existed. The first step in that process was to come to grips with the fact that evil is something that really exists, and that some people were, in fact, evil. This moved him outside the accepted belief system of his profession at that time, But his experience with some people could not be explained otherwise. The second step, he decided that he needed to observe an exorcism, or more more than one exorcism, in order to see if these were real. So he put out feelers and was invited to many different exorcisms. He describes two of which he believed to be real cases of possession and deliverance. It's a fascinating read, to be sure enlightening on a number of levels. His title, People of the Lie, captures the essence of how the enemy controls our lives. He is a murderer, and he is the father of lies, and those two traits are interconnected. He is intent on death, which means he is intent on getting us to destroy one another. He accomplishes this by getting us to believe lies about ourselves And one another. Ephesians 2 is about a cosmic battle that has been completely transformed by the cross of Christ. A cosmic battle that has been completely transformed by the cross of Christ. We were ruled by forces of spiritual darkness, and we've been rescued by God's mercy to a whole new way of life. Over 2,500 years ago, a Chinese general, Sun Tzu, in the art of war, I have to check if I'm saying that correctly, I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, but my friend would know, but uh, his book, The Art of War, stressed this. He said, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Ephesians 2 helps us know our enemy and know ourselves. Today we're going to learn that it's also important to know who isn't your enemy. Sun Tzu uh, said something else even more relevant to our spiritual warfare. And he said this, he said, All warfare is based on deception. All warfare is based on deception. The war we are involved in is is treacherous because enemy number one is the father of deception. And we humans have a long history of falling for it. If we are to be victorious, we must allow the cross of Jesus to transform everything. To understand the New Testament, you know, a lot of times people, I love reading the New Testament. I really don't want to read the Old. I don't like reading the Old. I don't spend any time in the Old. Here's the reality. You can't understand the New without the Old. I'm not going to suggest you can't get anything out of it. Certainly, it's a good place to start when we're new Christians, and there are many good things we'll glean. But I'm talking about if we want to understand it at the the level at which it's intended to really reach us, we have to understand the context in which it was written. It's, it's, as it were, a fulfillment of and a response to the old. that 
everything in it is built upon what was done in the old. So we have to understand the old to get there. Sometimes it's that one, something is fulfilled that was done in the old. Other times it, we see things that appear to be a complete reversal. In other words, it's a, hey, you know how things were like this? Well, no longer it's not that anymore. It's now this. It's like, oh, not that. Like, like eating laws. Like, we, like I, I, I had pork yesterday. I had pork the day before, right? Well, wait a minute. I thought you believed the Bible. Well, I do, but there's a complete reversal in that regard when I get to the new. And our text today is one of those complete reversals, and I'm going to walk us through that, that something that has changed, at least how it was perceived by the Jewish people, radically altered by the cross of Jesus. Paul knew well the cosmic battle that is transformed in Ephesians 2. It formed the imagination of every Jew. It's described in the second psalm. Why do the nations, the ethne, why do the nations, the ethne, rage? Why do they conspire, the NIV says. Why do they rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers, the archontes, the rulers, and I don't care that you know these Greek words, but you're going to see in a moment that they come up in Ephesians. There's a relevance to why I'm mentioning them. Okay, There's, there's, there's a connection between the two discussions here. They band together against the Lord and against His anointed one, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Ephesians 2 is actually about that warfare that's described in Psalm 2, but it changes the terms of the war. The hostility is removed. The enemy is transformed. In Psalm 2, the nations, the ethne, we're aligned against the Lord and against His Christ. In Ephesians 2, both Jew and Gentile, ethne, the nations, that's what Gentile means, it's just ethne, the nations. We get our word ethnic from it. Okay. In Ephesians 2, both Jew and Gentile are lined up against God, and both are being reconciled to God and one another. So instead of an us against them, it's actually an us against God, and a God reconciling us to himself, being the story of the gospel. We're going to explore this chapter under three headings today. Ruled, rescued, reconciled. Ruled, rescued, reconciled. It's the first time I've had sermon headings you could remember real easy. Right? <laughs> three words. <laughs> Ruled, rescued, reconciled. And um, <clears throat> we'll spend most of our time under ruled, and then... By doing that, I think we'll be able to understand more quickly rescued and reconciled. So let's begin under this first heading, ruled. And what I'm talking about here is what is said in these verses, uh, these first uh, uh, three verses, is that we are ruled by spiritual forces of darkness. We are ruled by spiritual forces of darkness. During the 1994 Rwandan genocide, in which over uh, a period of 100 days, um, <clears throat> between 500 and 800,000 people were murdered, often by their neighbors. A popular radio station was broadcasting hateful rhetoric, calling for the extermination of the Tutsi minority leading up to and during this genocide. Many believed that that was the fire starter for the violence, the, the thing that promoted the violence and, and, and the hatred to the level that it could actually occur. In 2014, 
David Yanagizawa Drott, um, hyphenated name, decided to find out if this was true. Because one could easily identify villages which did not have good radio reception. They had a perfect case studies all over the country. Places that had good radio reception and places that did not. And the results were shocking. The radio, as radio reception improved, the killings increased dramatically. Our text speaks of how in our natural state we followed the ways of the world and the, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, we often refer to this ruler of the kingdom of the air as Satan, right? The devil. A number of ways we might refer to him. Here, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The next one, it's not a second thing, like the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. No, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, literally of the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. So he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's the ruler of the spirit that is now at work in the sons, or the wind, if you will, the spirit, the pneuma, the wind that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So I, I think it's good to at least keep wind in mind because we've got air, and then the next phrase, you've got wind. And I, and I think that, that, that they're like images, if you will. The air, as it were, is filled with this ruler's messaging, provoking bitterness, rage, and wrath, anger, brawling, and slander, as well as malice. These all increase as his message goes out. The airwaves of that radio station are like the messaging of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Interestingly, the Greek word is eros. It's where we get our word air. Okay? And the pneuma, the wind that is now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience. The, the enemy, his lies cause us to think poorly of our neighbor, to assign evil motives to their actions, which are not actually there. He spews lies to perpetrate discord. And Ephesians, or if Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is about a cosmic battle, we should see evidence of that in the rest of this letter from Paul to the Ephesians, and, and we in fact do. First, the trajectory of chapter 2 moves toward the wall of what? Hostility being broken down by the cross. Reconciling humans to God, yes, but specifically in chapter 2 also to humans, Jews and Gentiles. People groups that were set up as a binary, if you will, that... It's us or them, it's us against the world kind of a mentality that are being reconciled together. Interestingly, of all the, the distinctions between groups, this is actually one that was set up by God. This distinction between Jew and Gentile. But it wasn't set up by God for the purpose of hostility. Rather, it was set up by God so that one might be a blessing to the other. And through them all nations on earth would be blessed. All ethne on earth would be blessed. But that's not what, how things turned out. It became hostility. The conflict of Psalm 2 between God and the nations had become a conflict between Jews, presumably on God's side, and the nations, apparently not on God's side. Paul recasts it with a new perspective. Secondly... So first, the trajectory of Ephesians moves toward the wall of hostility being broken down. So I think that speaks to the cosmic battle. But secondly, the letter culminates in chapter 6, informing us who our enemy is. 
It says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. This reinforces the point of chapter 2. The wall of hostility between humans of various tribes has been broken down by the cross. They are not the enemy. There are spiritual forces of darkness in the skies all around us, if you will. And that's where our enemy lies, not in the other people. Now when we get to chapter 6, we'll have to reimagine how warfare is done as we explore the meaning of that armor which we are to wear. But Paul, here in chapter 2, is recasting the imagination of what is going on in Psalm 2. He says, as for you... Now, we often miss this because we don't live in Paul's world and and in the Ephesians world. We live 2,000 years later. But there's a you and an us, a you and a we that's going on in this uh, dialogue here, really throughout the first two chapters. And that you and we is referring to you Gentiles and we Jews. And if we keep that straight, it helps us understand what's actually being said here. As for you, you ethne, you Gentile Ephesians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler, the archontes of the kingdom of the air, of the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, And then notice he switches, verse 3. All of us also, all of us who? All of us Jews also, lived among them at that one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, the rest of what? The rest of mankind, all the Gentiles. Like the rest, we Jews were by nature deserving of wrath. That's the NIV, but it's literally children of wrath, and that's important. I'll get to that momentarily. So, you were sons of disobedience, but we too were living that way, in effect. And like all of you, we're all children of wrath. Psalm 2 pictured the hostile cosmic battle between the nations, the ethne, And their rulers, the archon, human, spiritual, both, against Yahweh, his Messiah. And it was imagined against his people. Paul reorients a key aspect of this, however. He shows that not only were you Gentile sons of disobedience, but we of Jewish heritage, along with you, were children of wrath, children of impulsive rage. Now, while the NIV's interpretive translation, deserving of wrath, is a possible rendering, and it's how most of us Reformed believers generally read it, I'd like you to consider a different way of reading it because of the context. And I'll show you what I mean. When when describing, and by the way, give me about two minutes or so of making you think a little more deeply, and then it'll be okay. We'll get back to letting you out. You'll have a breath of fresh air. But I think it's relevant because the meaning of a text has got to be understood if we're going to move on to its application, right? We need to understand the meaning of a text. So, Paul, when describing Gentiles, he calls them 
uh, literally it's sons, or we could say sons and daughters, of disobedience. It's a genitive. Disobedience is a genitive. It's just simply translated, or at least on a gloss, of disobedience. Now, we understand that to mean sons or sons and daughters characterized by what? Disobedience. We don't, we don't read that to mean sons and daughters destined to receive disobedience. That doesn't even make sense, right? If they're not destined to receive disobedience. They're characterized by disobedience. Okay? Likewise, when we read that the Jews also are following the cravings of their flesh and following its desires, that they, like all of you, like the rest of mankind, are by nature also not sons of disobedience, but children, similar term, of wrath. Then I would suggest that because they're set in parallel, we should understand that genitive, wrath, to mean characterized by wrath, which would be the most natural way to read it, not destined to receive wrath. Which would be true. It would be a point that could be made elsewhere. I just don't think it's the point that's being made in this text. If you follow me. Okay. The parallelism. Sons of disobedience. We also children of wrath. Naturally leads one to read it as uh, of. in In those ofs the same way. Also, the larger context of God breaking down the wall of hostility at the end of chapter 2, which we read earlier, between Jews and Gentiles, and then later of Paul's instruction in chapter 4, verse 31, for these believers to put away all anger and wrath. Well, that wrath characterized them. I think it also points toward an understanding of children characterized by wrath, impulse, rage, if you will. You might say, why is this important? By by the way, we're out of the deep weeds now. We can take a breath. It's all good. Come up for air. We're past that. Why is this important? Does it even matter? Well, I, I think it matters if for no other reason it's God's word and we need to understand what it says. Okay. And by the way, we have a word that was written 2,000 plus years ago. And so it's going to always take some work to get to the heart of what it is getting at. And that's okay. Um, But I would also say it matters for other reasons. If it is correct, it, it helps us understand the nature of what it means to be ruled by the ruler of this age. The ruler of the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. And what it means to live by gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires or its impulses and thoughts. You see, the rulers of this age have death in mind, both ours and others. And he uses lies to achieve that end. And when we are ruled by such impulses, such cravings, it produces death upon death. That's what he is after. And it matters because if we are going to get to the bottom of the hostility, which is beginning to increasingly describe our culture, even among Christians, we need to understand the spiritual nature of this issue. In John 8, Jesus describes the devil as both a murderer and the father of lies. They are not distinct, unrelated traits. He accomplishes death by getting us to believe lies which lead us to destroy one another. Case in point, by the end of John 8, because of the lies they believe, the Jewish leaders pick up stones intending to kill Jesus. 
divisiveness and hostility might most succinctly describe our current age. And in such a time, we need to recognize that this is how the world's spirit works to accomplish the devil's will, death and destruction through lies. Lies that lead to hate and not love. Lies that build walls of hostility between us. Paul offers that Jews, like the rest of mankind, Gentiles, are characterized by disobedience and anger or hostility. Like Cain toward Abel, we are sons of disobedience and children of impulsive wrath toward one another. That's how we were. But imagine this. God, who is rich in mercy through the cross of Christ, reconciles us to God and one another. And that leads to our second point. Beginning in verse 4, let's read again. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Despite our disobedience and hostility, which breaks the heart of God's command to love Him and one another, despite that, God never stopped loving us. but because of His great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy. It it wasn't as if God was, like, ready to kill us all, and Jesus came along and talked them out of it. It's the wrong concept of God. God is rich in mercy. The enemy lies in our ears trying to convince us that God is really more like stingy in mercy than rich in mercy. We sometimes forget that Jesus coming to free us from our sin was the will of the Father. Jesus came and bore the worst that human governance, the rulers, the archontes of the nations, the ethne, Pilate and Herod could heap upon him the worst that religious power could heap upon him, the Jewish governance that turned him over. And he absorbed it. And though they deserved God's wrathful retaliation, Jesus absorbed it but did not heap, and, and did not heap it back upon them. The children of wrath and anger were not treated with wrath and anger but with love because of God's rich mercy. That is the glorious good news of the gospel. Amen? We have been rescued from the enslavement that we were held in under the ruler of the authority of this air, the ruler of the spirit, the wind that is at work in the sons of disobedience. From We are rescued from our impulses and inclinations to the desires of our flesh and of our minds by the pure grace and mercy of God, our adoptive Father. When God gave us 
the wonderful gift of faith in our Lord Jesus. He joined us to our Lord Jesus by that faith such that we go through a, a death and resurrection in the act of baptism by faith. We die with Him and are raised with Him and seated with Him above all rulers and authorities that were ruling over the uh, spirit that was in us as sons of disobedience. He's now putting His own spirit in us to redirect our lives. He recreated us to do His work rather than the work of the ruler of this age. That work of hostility and rage, He's given us good works to do. Works of love. We, both Jews and Gentiles together, are His workmanship, His creation. Created for what? He rescued us from the cycle of hostility and hatred that ends in death and put us into a cycle of life unto life. Amen? In verses 1 and 2, we were dead, walking, parapateo, walking in transgressions and sins because we were under the authority of the evil one. Now, having been made alive, we are created to walk, peripateo, in good works which God has prepared. Those ten verses begin with us walking one way and they end with us, because of God's rich mercy, walking a completely different way. Amen? We've been ruled by the spirit of darkness to walk in the darkness. We've been rescued... And now as adopted children of the light, we are to walk in, that reconcili- to walk in reconciliation. And that leads to our third uh, heading, which is reconciled. Reconciled to God and one another. Therefore, remember, we read beginning in verse 11, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time, You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, shalom. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to us, those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You see, the battle is no longer and us-against-them kind of war. The two groups have been made one. This is where what Ephesians 6 says about not wrestling with flesh and blood comes in. They are not the enemy. Our battle is not against other people. The political machine of this world knows that if it can get people to think that their political opponents are out to get them, to destroy their way of life, they can manipulate and control them. And that's what they've been attempting to do, frankly, for 200 years. It's not new. 
This is why many of the founding fathers, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, to name three, thought that a two-party system would be dangerous and potentially destroy this nation. In fact, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were great friends, despite being as different from each other, even politically different from each other as one could possibly uh, be, or as two could possibly be. <laughs> Adams persuaded Jefferson to draft the Declaration of Independence. I mean, they, they had differing views, but hey, you should draft the Declaration of Independence. And he signed it. They were dear friends. Both men loathed the idea of political parties. Adams called them the greatest political evil imaginable. Jefferson thought party loyalty was, quote, the last degradation of a free and moral agent. The danger lay in collapsing people into two sides, the binary. That same thing I talked about last week, right before I set up a binary, but the four of them. But anyway, <coughs> despite that fact about them, they fell prey to it. Their long friendship began to crumble when one party selected Jefferson and the other Adams to run for president against each other. Their followers began using each one's writings against the other. In the end, Adams won by merely three electoral votes. That's not what you call a landslide. <laughs> no mandate there. Very close. After the election, Jefferson drafted a letter to Adams to reconcile over their differences, emphasizing his friendship, loyalty, and respect for Adams. But James Madison convinced him not to send it. The next election was as nasty as any today. Jefferson hired journalists to badmouth Adams. When Jefferson was elected president, his former friend left town rather than welcome him to office at the inauguration. Their serious rift lasted 16 years. But through the aid of a friend, Adams wrote a note to Jefferson seeking reconciliation 16 years later. Over the next 14 years, they exchanged 158 letters. In one letter, Adams wrote, you and I ought not to die before we have explained ourselves to each other. They didn't always agree, but they did learn how to seek understanding rather than winning. And they were friends until they died on the same day, July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the nation. Evidently, the church in Ephesus had to shed the us-against-them mentality. For now, the Gentiles were welcomed in as citizens. They, they had to learn that the enemy is not flesh and blood, the people, but rather a cosmic enemy who tells lies, lies intent on getting us to hate one another. They're out to get us, those lies tell us. We are to no longer be ruled by such disobedience and hostility. This reconciliation occurs because the cross brings both to God through the cross. Reconciliation with God is the foundation of reconciliation to one another. Which is why the church ought to be a beacon of light in this area. And sadly, we far too often are not. 
The gospel offers a counter story, a different narrative. It begins on the grandest of stages, humanity's conflict with God. God has taken the first step in reconciliation. God has absorbed all, the huma- all that humanity and rebellion could throw at him at the cross. And he prayed for humanity's forgiveness. They know not what they do, he said. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This message of reconciliation is that God is no longer holding our sins against us, according to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The gospel calls us to go and do likewise, to love our enemies, to forgive, to not hold people's sins against them. Our message about God will not make sense if we are not also doing likewise to one another. When conflict characterizes so much of the church, our light, our witness, it dims. Our oil runs out. The very reason for our existence wanes. Ruled. Rescued. Reconciled. We were ruled by forces of spiritual darkness. We've been rescued by divine mercy. We are reconciled to God and one another. The story, this story is at the heart of the gospel, and it's at the heart of gospel culture that, we, that is a missional priority for us. It's at the heart of gospel mercy. It's at the heart of gospel outreach. It's at the heart of gospel unity. Therefore, our gospel formation must aim toward this. In our prayer, we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. In our worship, we sing of the God who loved his enemies and allowed, allow, allows us to be shaped um, and formed by that. We, we, we want what we are singing about God to shape and inform who we are and how we live. We must begin by living the truth of the gospel, the counter story. If the church is just as divided and divisive and and antagonistic in how they interact societally, we offer no witness to the world. We have to have a different story to live by. Our hope is not in this life. It's in resurrection, and that allows us to do it. We seek to understand even those we don't agree with. We seek to find points of intersection with the gospel in their lives. We're not looking for disagreement with our ideals. We're looking for ways to connect so that they might know our God. It is not the same story that the world offers of power overcome with power, but that of evil powers overcome by what appears to be weakness, the cross. I grab one more snippet from Sun Tzu, the Chinese general. He said, appear weak when you are strong. Well, I don't think he understood the cross, but nonetheless, God mastered that tactic in the cross. He appeared weak when he was most strong, and we are to do likewise. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your word is a light to our path. Lord, may our path be lit so that we might walk in, a, in ways that unite and do not divide. That may the 
dividing walls of hostility between us and people that are so radically different than us be torn down. May we learn to love them as Christ loved us, as God loved us in Christ. May we be imitators of God in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.